All right, hey, so we are in the second week of our Advent series that we're calling Rediscover Christmas. Although, you know, for some of us, maybe last week wasn't as much of a rediscovery as maybe a discovery, because last week we looked at Revelation chapter 12, talked about this cosmic battle of Christmas from the perspective of God, where God was at war with Satan. Revelation 12 kind of pulls back the veil and gives us a fuller picture of the big picture. And it's not something that even those that are aware of it, we just don't think about it often. Um, And by the way, if you thought that was a weird Christmas sermon, you buckle up for this week, okay? (laughs) Now, I want to start by talking about uh, families, our own families, actually. And for for many of us, you know, uh, if you hang around with your extended family, Maybe not all year, but if you've got it, it usually starts right at Thanksgiving, especially if that's kind of not necessarily the most favorite relationship for some folks. But Thanksgiving becomes that time of the year where kind of the expectation level goes up, where maybe if you're not usually around your family, then maybe sometime between now and Christmas or the whole time, we get um, to spend more time. We get to spend more time with people uh, that some of us maybe have a little bit of time uh, of a troubled time or tense time um, being with family. And by the way, I mean, I hope all of you, especially those of you that have great relationships with your family, I hope you got to have a great Thanksgiving. And if you were able to do it, I hope you got together with, with friends and with family. And you know, sometimes I think one of the best things about this whole holiday season, one of the best things is family. And sometimes I think one of the hardest things about this whole holiday season is all together now, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, some of us, maybe lots of us have, you know, I don't know, the that difficult person in the extended family, you know, like your drunk uncle, um, <laughs> Uh, maybe the black sheep of the family that just, ooh, that person is kind of difficult to be around or people frown on them. Maybe you're not even sure why. You know, um, sometimes that happens uh, like in, in some larger families, extended families, you know, somebody goes to, to prison or somebody embarrasses the family so they kind of get scrubbed from the family. Um, or in a bigger family context, this has happened in my extended family where somebody got divorced and we didn't ever talk about it, just like poof, like we kind of glossed over. It was like, hey, where did Uncle Wally go? Where's he been, right? Just, um, but, you know, because a lot of times we like to look at our extended family and sort of polish it up, kind of like people do with their resume. We're just going to polish it up. We're going to make it look really good. We're going to avoid talking about, you know, the scandals of our family tree because it's messy, right? It's embarrassing. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's painful, Now, one of the ways, one of these little kind of skeleton-in-the-closet type things for my extended family, um, messy deals, is in my extended family, and and by the way, I had to double-check with my mom. That's how little it gets talked about, even though on my mom's side, there's eight kids. My dad's side, there's like 11 kids, right? But this little legend doesn't get mentioned too often. Um, I kind of think maybe some of the older folks are are hoping that this will just die down and go away, and we'll forget that this happened, right? But... So my great-grandpa on my mom's side, he and uh, his wife had eight kids, great-grandpa, eight kids with his wife, and then she died. He was in his 60s, but apparently he wasn't done yet (laughs) because he then married the teenage housekeeper in his 60s and had eight more children with her, right? 
My mom's mom, so my grandma, sweetest woman in the world, she was part of that second batch, right? So it's messy. It's just weird. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's just gross, right? See, we all grow up in families, and if we're honest and we dig deep enough and we're real enough, we all grew up in one of those families at some level where somebody had issues, right? And today we're going to look at the backstory of Jesus and his heritage, the actual royal family line that he came from, because that's actually a huge part of the Christmas story. And his family line, if you didn't know it, had some serious issues. Now, just imagine that you were somebody that for the first time you decide to sit down, you're going to read the New Testament, right? You maybe heard that verse that was read during the Advent reading, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Oh, he gave Jesus because of love. He gave Jesus to us. Wow, this is great. And so maybe you got curious and you decided to crack open the Bible and, and somebody told you at least to try, you know, start with the New Testament for the story of Jesus. And you're like, cool, so you crack it open. And if you do that, what you're going to find is a list of names, right? There's a list of names, that whole left column, right? It's, and then into the second one, it's a list of names, and, and it would look like a long list of just random names. Many of them are hard to pronounce. It's kind of a real snoozer, at least to people in our culture. But uh, Matthew, who wrote the first book of the New Testament, he was originally writing to a Jewish audience, an ancient Jewish audience, and to them, genealogies were like riveting. It was very important. And in that day and age, a genealogy was very compelling especially one like this, that at some point, right smack dab in the middle, you read the name of King David. Oh, that makes it actually even more dramatic because that means Jesus is from a royal line. But there's another king right now who's not from a royal line, so you're making a claim that could get you killed. <clears throat> but that's a different part of the story. But you crack this open, right? And you start reading. And... and um, this genealogy, then, if you see on the page here, it takes you to the second column here that we're looking at on the screen, and, and it takes you to verse 18, and you're like, oh, this is where we start the story. We'll skip the name. Start in verse 18, and in fact, let's read verse 18 aloud together. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, there you go, right? A pregnant virgin. Now, that's how you start a compelling story, right? I mean, that's a, whew, what a claim. We're like, there, Matthew, you should have just started right there, got into the story in a big way. And it's a whole other sermon, that whole virgin birth thing we're not going to get into today. But, but, nope, Matthew, instead of starting there, he starts out with what we already talked about, this royal genealogy, and he does it in a really odd way. He actually highlights and reminds the people that are reading in his audience some of these odd, strange ways that God had previously worked through the history of, of Israel's royal family itself. Some of the scandalous ways, actually. And one of the things he does by in highlighting that, which, you know, we might not catch the first 20 times through, but he highlights and uses, includes, by the way, he includes the names of four women. 
And he doesn't use like, like the notable matriarch figures like, you know, Sarai or Rachel. No, no, no. Matthew actually brings out and highlights uh, for his Jewish audience that he's writing this book to some of the real scandalous stories that were linked in the royal family line. Things that, you know, we'd probably kind of skip over if it was us writing the story, right? We don't want people to know that. But uh, like, like um, the first uh, one mentioned, the first woman is Tamar. And, and it's connected to Judah, who's also mentioned in the line here, treating his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as a prostitute. Hmm. Or mentions Rahab, which would kind of make some of his readers uncomfortable because it would remind them that this character Boaz that they just revered, the character Boaz in their history was the son of a Jericho prostitute, not an Israelite, Rahab. Or Ruth, who, you know, she's got her own book in the Bible um, named after her, and, and that's, that's good and wonderful and great, but um, she was a widower. She was also you know, an outsider. Outsider, she was not of Jewish ancestry. Those are three. The fourth one, um, her name doesn't get mentioned, but she does get mentioned uh, connected to King David, who committed adultery with, it even says, the, the wife of Uriah the, not Jew, Hittite. Anybody know her name? Bathsheba gets alluded to here, and it's almost like Matthew's kind of scratching at them a little bit here, just giving a little nod in his opening story of the genealogy to these unconventional stories that are connected to the Jesus story, and I kind of wonder if he's saying, hey, listen, guys, if God can work through these bizarre ways, watch now what God's going to do next. Watch this. And originally, when I wanted to do this message, I thought, hey, we're just going to hit on all four of those kind of female characters, because um, each of their stories is remarkable, but I got into the first one, into Tamar, and realized that's the only one we're going to have time for today. Um, and, and so what I want to do is remember and get into the story of Tamar and Judah uh, as a way of getting us into the story of Christmas. Because again, just imagine, just imagine you were wanting to, you know, open the New Testament. You wanted to learn about the story of Jesus, maybe for the first time, and maybe it was Christmas time, and you got curious. So you pour a mug of cocoa, you get a few Christmas cookies on the plate, and you open that Bible up, and here would be what you would read, start of the story of Jesus, start of the story of Christmas as told in the New Testament. You'd see Matthew 1. Next slide, next slide. Matthew 1, and then many of our modern Bibles, it has the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now let's read this together out loud on your market set. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Are you sleeping yet? <laughs> right? I mean, it's a little bit of a snoozer, right? Okay. Now, let's say you were a little more curious, though, right? You're a little bit curious. You're like, okay, who are these characters? I mean, obviously, there must be something going on. And instead of doing what, you know, 
I tend to do, which is to kind of read past it real fast and get to the good, good, good stuff. You were like, huh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, they must have interesting stories. And Tamar, huh, interesting how they mention her as this family line of the Christmas story. And so maybe you Google their names, because, you know, Google knows everything. And it would let you know, oh, hey, all you got to do is flip back in your Bible to what we call the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and it talks about, and this is just the first part of the genealogy, talks about each one of these characters, and you're like, oh, great, okay, I want to know the backstory. So, first guy, Abraham, all kinds of great things going on with Abraham, but some weird stuff too, including, you know, the weird one where he impregnates his wife's maid, Hagar, that's kind of weird for a hero in the story, um, or the times where he pretends that his wife is his sister and lets another king kind of romance his wife. Like, that's weird, man. So weird. And then you'd get to Isaac's story, and, you know, maybe one of the things that would stand out is like, dude, he did practically the same thing as his dad pretends that his wife is his sister. It's like, dude, wait, what the heck is going on? These are the heroes of the faith. Um, and then you get into the story of Jacob, and there's all kinds of ammo there because um, Jacob, that son, he actually deceived his dad, stole his twin brother Esau's birthright. He's very deceptive, but he's in the list. Huh, strange. And then you maybe would read that Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and two, their two maids. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, this is starting to get really strange. And, and, and you would see that, that, that Jacob favored one of his sons. Anybody know that son's name? Joseph, right? Joseph is favored so much so that the other sons that were not the younger ones, the older brothers, decide that they're going to kidnap him. They want to kill him. But one of the brothers who's also named in the genealogy here, um, named, anybody know which brother? Judah says, no, 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 let's sell him as a slave. Um, let's cover his robe up with blood, uh, goat's blood, you know, and, and then make our dad think that Joseph's dead and we'll just lie to him. I just go, wait, what? But listen, these, these are the families that made it into the Bible so relax, hold your head up. Your family's doing way better than you think, right? <laughs> like, there's no perfect people. There's no perfect families, not even in the Bible. In fact, in the dysfunctional family that is the family line of Jesus, which is the start of the Christmas story, these scandalous characters and more, we're just stopping with these. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, I want you to hear me. This story here from Genesis, this is a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story. Now, I know, as I tell the story now uh, of, of the story of Judah and Tamar, you might think that I've lost my marbles and be like, no, no, there's, there's no way that this story is a Christmas story. But I've, I've wanted to do something like this for years, ever since I saw John Ortberg do something similar. So I'm going to ask you to just hang with me and stick around as I try to kind of make the case that this weird story I'm going to tell is a Christmas story. Like, stick around through the weirdness till I get the end. And then you can decide, yeah, he's crazy, he has lost his marbles, okay? Um, but just, just stick with me, okay? Okay, we've got one here. Anybody over here? Okay, we've got a few that are going to, okay, Troy's, Troy in the back. All right, we're good, all right. 
Whew, thanks, Troy. <clears throat> now, here we go. Most of the scripture, by the way, uh, the text is going to be on the screen as I tell the story, so I'm not going to read all of it verbatim. Um, but here we go. Genesis chapter 38, we start our Christmas story for today. What we have is this man that we've talked about, Judah. Judah leaves his father and his brothers, and this is after what he did to Joseph and selling him into slavery and then lying to his dad. Perhaps the shame gets to him because this happens pretty quickly after he pulls that stunt. And so Judah leaves, and he goes down to a place called Adullam, and he marries a Canaanite girl. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite audience, this would spell trouble, and it would be a weakening of the, the inheritance. It would be a weakening already of this family line of Abraham. And see, what Judah did by going to, to Canaan, he did exactly the opposite of what his dad and his grandpa and his great-grandfather had done. See, Abraham went out of his way to make sure that his son didn't marry from the Canaanites, and then his son did the same for Jacob. But he goes and marries the Canaanites and leaves his father and his, his, his brothers and his people. So what happens next is Judah, his Canaanite wife, have three boys, and apparently they get a little better naming them as they go along, but the first was named Ur. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the text, right? Second was named Onan. It's like, eh, okay. Um, and then the third was Shelah. Eh, getting better, getting better. So these boys then grow up. Uh, verse 6 tells us that Judah then goes out and gets a wife for Ur, for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But... Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Again, whole nother sermon, very interesting. But notice here in the passage on the screen, the writer wants to make it really clear what the birth order was and where Ur was in the birth order. He was the firstborn. He says twice, he's the firstborn, like get the point. And so now in the ancient world, here's how it worked. The firstborn would be the heir to everything of his fathers, of his parents, and the firstborn would get all the good stuff once the parents died. And, you know, a lot of times in modern times, there's a similarity with firstborns. Um, firstborns are often, how many firstborns in the room here? Got a handful. So often the achievers, right, um, you know, the leaders, kind of that firstborn thing. And maybe, I heard one guy suggest, maybe that's why they named him Ur, because he's handsome Ur, he's smart Ur, he's stronger. Right? Yeah, you're welcome. And it turns out he's also wicked Ur, right? So that was not my joke, but there you go. So he gets out of the story real fast. And what would happen in many ancient cultures is if, is if a woman's husband died, then the father-in-law was obligated to allow her to marry the next oldest son. I mean, they had no kind of social welfare, no safety net, no system like that. And so everybody in their society would recognize that Judah, the father-in-law, was obligated um, to do this in order to keep Tamar, who, by the way, would have been a teenage girl. So if you're thinking like older woman, no. Teenage girl, teenage girl, get that picture in your mind. So to keep this teenage girl from being destitute, that would be his obligation. So Judah's, Judah's second son is, anyone? Onan. Onan, good job, look at the Bible scholar right here. Now, 
Onan. Here's what Onan knows, okay? If he has a son by Tamar, then that kid that he has is legally going to be treated as his older brother's son, and that means he would get the firstborn inheritance when the parents died, which would also mean a financial loss for Onan because otherwise he's next and he gets it all. So Onan figures out a way to cheat Tamar, not just that way, but also to shame her in that culture with, with barrenness, which was a big deal in that culture and in that uh, kind of patriarchal day. And he also is going to dishonor her. He's also going to use her. And by the way, I'm not going to summarize this one. I'm going to read this one straight from the Bible because it's just that weird. This is the exact next few verses. Again, buckle up. Here we go. Um, Verse 8, Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, which is his middle son, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your dead older brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. That is there. Just, okay. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Like, holy smokes, right? Now, in case you've forgotten what I said earlier, this is a Christmas story, right? (laughs) Read it to the kids, yes, if they're in their 20s. (laughs) Now, back in ancient cultures, Tamar, people would look at her and go, wow, she's really this, this, this victim. She's a tragic victim. Everybody would feel bad for the way that she's been treated in this story because instead of being this, this mother and this line from Abraham, which, you know, the the neighboring tribes probably knew about the prophecy and the promise of God and that God's raising up a great people. But instead of being a mother in that lineage of Abraham, she now has been married off to two wicked men and has no children to show for it. So then, of course, culturally, Judah is obligated now to allow Tamar to marry son number three, Shelah. So Judah tells Tamar, hey, listen, for now, why don't you just go home to your dad? When son number three grows up, you can marry him. You can marry him. But the, excuse me, text also lets us know what he's thinking. And essentially, he's thinking like, dude, this woman's like a black widow. There's no way I'm going to let her anywhere near my last son. So, you know, he never sends for her, which culturally means that Judah right here acts with dishonor. He defrauds her, cheats Tamar of her her honor, her legacy, her dignity, her future. And just a quick aside, remember here, um, the text says that both Ur and Onan were wicked in God's sight. And who killed them off? God, not Tamar, right? But, you know... I'm just so glad, you know, that these days we're past that kind of thing where, you know, parents would try to blame others when their kids would screw up, right? So, sorry, sorry, back to the, I'm going to get in trouble here. Back to the story. Um, okay, so what happens next in the story is after a long time, it says that Judah, Judah's wife now dies. 
Now, to me, it doesn't seem like Judah spends a long time mourning. He seems like he's kind of ready to, you know, date again pretty quickly. But he's not an e-harmony guy. He's not a, a Christian mingle kind of guy. He's not even a silver singles for 60 plus kind of guy. I looked it up. That's real. Um, he's a Tinder guy. So he swiped right, swipes right, which means he goes down to a place called Timna, you know, what happens in Timna stays in Timna, which, you know, sounds like a fun little thing. But actually, it's sad when you think about even that saying a little bit. It's like, no, bummer, you know, there's always a consequence, right? Sometimes there are known consequences, sometimes unknown, but there's always a consequence. And this one, in this story, it's going to be a big one. Now, what happens is Tamar hears where Judah has gone. And then to our surprise as a reader, this teenage Canaanite woman goes into action. She disguises herself as a prostitute, which sounds like she knew a little something about her father-in-law's character. She puts on a veil so she can't be recognized. And what happens is then, you know, as Judah comes to the town and she's outside the town, he walks by. Apparently he knows how this thing works. He propositions her, offers to pay her a young goat from, the clock, from his flock in the future. And she says, well, yeah, but you're going to have to give me your seal and your cord and your staff as collateral. Kind of like he's, you know, she's going to hang on to his, you know, passwords or his credit card. Um, and so he says, deal, right? Because his deal, they have sex. And although he doesn't know it, and I suppose she doesn't either at first, she gets pregnant. Mind you, by the father of her first, now two dead Two dead husbands, right? This is weird, right? And again, remember, this is a part of the Christmas story, right? <laughs> Read it to the kids if they're in their 50s, okay? It's at this point, okay? Now, again, remember how we got here. We didn't just drop in on this. We are reading through the genealogy of Jesus, the opening verses of the New Testament, the gospel of the book of Matthew. This is the royal family line that goes from Abraham to David and eventually to who? Jesus, right? Yeah, this is that line. Like, Jerry Springer would love this, right? Be fantastic. And, and just think about this part. Okay, so this weird pregnancy, this, this means that Judah, I have to read this, will be both the father of Tamar's children and Tamar's father-in-law, Weird. And it means that Tamar will be the mother of these children and the sister-in-law to her own children. Just, right? Okay, a little odd, a little strange maybe, right? How messed up is this? Again, hey, your family's doing great, okay? You guys are doing great. This made it into the Bible. All right, the next scene of our episode from our family line of Jesus' Christmas story uh, tells us that Judah then goes home. He tries to have the goat delivered for payment because, you know, Postmates wasn't invented yet. But nobody can find, you know, that prostitute by the side of the road. So he says, all right, forget it. I tried. I don't want word to get out that I slept with a prostitute. So that happens. And then three months go by. Three months go by. And Judah starts hearing some gossip, the latest gossip that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is now wearing maternity clothes. Well, his sons aren't dead. So in that ancient culture, uh, as the father-in-law, he's the one that has to decide what to do with her. 
And can you imagine his excitement? He now has an answer to his problem. He can get rid of her. He can get rid of her. Verse 24, this is what he says. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. I mean, the ancient world was brutal, and I think it really gets highlighted in this story on purpose because the original Hebrew text, like this is how we translate what they just used two words for. It said, the two-word sentence was, bring, burn. Bring, burn. That was it. That's what they said. So they do. They bring. And just as they're getting ready to, you know, light the match, she goes all in with this royal flush on this poker game of life right here. Verse 25 says, as she, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. She said, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ring any bells, dad? <laughs> Look familiar, dad? Recognize this stuff, Judah? John Orberg points out how that word in the text, recognize, recognize, is a big word in this story. And actually also in your life and mine as well, recognize. Verse 26 says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. I mean, what a turnaround. What a turnaround. I mean, think just moments before, he's gone from being this guy who uses women, uses prostitutes, blames uh, his daughter-in-law for his, the, the demise of his wicked sons, and on top of that, getting really big, you know, he uses prostitutes, but, oh, she got caught in prostitution. We're going to kill her. Goes from that just kind of big, crazy, arrogant darkness to being dropped in his tracks when he recognized he recognized his deceitfulness. In a moment, he recognized his sin, his brokenness. He recognizes that he did not honor her or keep his word. He recognizes that he didn't take care of this frightened, teenage, widowed daughter-in-law of his. Maybe he recognized that he used his strength and position, his power in that culture to defraud someone who would have ended up destitute if he had continued on in his previous hard-hearted ways he recognized. And when he recognized, God began to do a work in him. And if you go and read the rest of the story, you'll see a very different Judah over the next number of chapters of the story. But in this moment, they call off the execution and Tamar lives. Verse 27 tells us when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And by the way, it turns out that one of those twin boys ends up being the one through whom the line of the children of Abraham flows to David all the way to Jesus. Amazing, this story. And so it is that Tamar, this rejected Canaanite teenage girl, gets to be a mother in the line of Israel. She gets to be a part of God's great adventure after all. She becomes the great, 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 you know, times 30 times more than that grandmother of Jesus. 
So, I guess the moral of the story is this. If you're a woman and your first husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and, and God takes him out too and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, just wait for your mother-in-law to die, pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids and it'll all work out in the end. Merry Christmas, everybody. Not quite, not quite, not quite. Um, actually, here, here's just one of the takeaways we can make from this. Um, and let me just ask it in the form of question. Do any of us wonder in our life or in our own history or our family's history, do you ever think that your life or your story are too far gone? You ever think, oh man, my story, my history, it's too wild, too scandalous, too sinful? Because if that thought ever occurs to you, I just want to point you right back here to how the inspired word of God begins the New Testament, the opening verses here where Matthew blatantly and clearly sends this message that Jesus now demonstrates his entire life in ministry. Like when Matthew leads with the scandal of this, he's, it's like he's kind of given a warning to his readers. Hey, friends, hey, listen, if you think that Jesus just came for our group <laughs> or this purebred Jewish line or that Jesus only came for the squeaky clean religious folks, guess again. He's kind of given them a foreshadowing, like the setup for all these, you know, things that would have been shocking to them, these shocking things that Jesus did that they're going to read about in his gospel, like where Jesus treated prostitutes and tax collectors and scoundrels and sinners and not good enough, treated them with acceptance and love and dignity and made a place for them at his table. He shared what they called table fellowship, which meant accepting those folks. That's why people got so mad at him. He, he treated Samaritans and Gentiles outsiders that everybody else hated. He treated them with dignity, with honor. And that's not even to mention or start getting into this countercultural honor with which Jesus treats women and elevates the status of women. And isn't it just like God to color outside the lines and include unconventional storylines, to include outsiders and scandalous characters into the genealogy of Jesus as a permanent part of the Christmas story in his inspired word? Isn't that just like God? I actually think that this Genealogy is another reason to believe that the, Bible's, the Bible is actually true. S stick with me for a second here. If some, if, if, you know, some people would say that, well, there, listen, you know, the Bible got cleaned up by editors who wanted to put a better shine on things. But if that's what was, what was going on, don't you think that they would have thought to get rid of the scandalous stories, right, or the non-Jewish people that you know, polluted the bloodline or that they would have left out some of the unrighteous, ungodly, embarrassing men that did stupid stuff. Like, you're reading this, you gotta be like, wait a minute, seriously? God chose idiot, lying, lustful, murderous Judah who sold his own brother Joseph into slavery and told their dad, Jacob, that Joseph was dead. He gets to be the great, 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 great times 30 grandpa of Jesus? Listen, let's, let's not include that. Let's leave that one out, right? 
But God doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. And I wish I had more time because I also feel like it's important to just at least note, like, the women here, even these four that are listed in the genealogy, they're not the bad guys here. Like, just even Tamar, she was a victim, and these other women were, were, were victims of their societies, victims of the sins of men. They weren't like these, you know, evil characters. But when we hear their names, and when the people back then would hear those names mentioned, there are stories attached to those names. They're kind of like the skeletons in Jesus' family closet. The skeletons in Jesus' family closet, they're like... But, you know, again, I love what Matthew does here because here's the truth. You cannot even tell Jesus' story, (laughs) and particularly the, the messy Christmas story of how he got here without telling sinful, scandalous stories. And that is why Jesus came. You know, I've heard pastors say, you know, that in their church, if they tell some of these types of scandalous Bible stories once in a while, people go, pastor, we don't need to hear that. You know, what's that got to do with Advent or Christmas? Let's, let's just keep it all sparkly and tinselly, right? But I'm so grateful here at Hope to be a part of a church family where we already know that God doesn't want us to gloss over the uncomfortable episodes, Because if we start doing that, we lose the reason that Jesus had to even come and be born the way he was born. We lose, you know, his coming as a love story because his coming was a display of his unconditional love. A love that was extended to, to messy, broken, sinful people. People like me. People like you. People like us. That's why Jesus was born and came and then died. You know, when I read this story here of the story of Judah and Tamar, it reminds us of this grand truth that we read in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Then he continues, says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then could Judah's sin or Tamar's sin, could this scandalous story separate them from the love of God? I hear in this passage, Paul saying aloud for the people in the back, no, (laughs) no, there's nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God that has come and been given to us in Jesus. No matter how bad they messed up, no matter how bad we mess up, it cannot separate us from the love of God, cannot cast them out of the family of God and will not cast us out of the family of God, cannot keep us out of the family of God because somehow even in all of the mess, God's love and his mercy find a way to work its way through even in these crazy situations. 
And by the way, that's not a free pass to just go out and just do stupid, hurtful stuff, right? But, but, but noticing that God's love is at work in spite of their mess, actually, I, I think, gives me hope. Because my life has had big messes, problems, situations, things that I'm not proud of. And I still deal with the consequences of, of failures, with the divorce in my own story, the sins in my life. Yet somehow, God's love, grace, and mercy keep weaving its way through. Jesus' love comes to my heart, redeems me, heals me, is freeing me, and is transforming me. And you too. You too. I love this family, and I look around and I see so many stories, your stories that I know that are a testament to the love of God working through tragedy and pain and brokenness and being victims. But no matter who you are, and so many of you have experienced this, no matter what you've done, the love of God was put on display in the gift that God gave us in his son, Jesus, and you are experiencing that love and that hope. See, people like you and people like me then, even despite our crazy stories, somehow we get loved and we get invited to partner with God in this great restoration project, this project that he is carrying out in his kingdom to redeem our world through his love. That's a beautiful thing. So, So then, Tamar's... Story reminds us of the real message of Christmas. That, that because of what Jesus has done, none of our sinfulness, brokenness, or victimization gets to have the last word in our lives. Only, only God's love and grace has the last word. Amen? Amen. Worship team, will you come? Communion stewards, will you take your place? You know, the family line of Jesus, right? It was a mess, which is maybe part of why he had so much compassion on the messy, right? The prostitutes, the outsiders, the sinners, the castoffs, the rejected. And Jesus multiple times showed us who was welcome at his table. Everyone, right? Even the messy. And he got in trouble from the religious folks for eating with and welcoming everyone, which, because it meant that he accepted them. They called it the, the table fellowship. This is your table fellowship. And we see in Jesus' table fellowship that all were welcome. And so then this is how we do it. This is how we do it. We follow his example, and all are invited to the table. All are welcome at our table, too. Which brings us now to the communion table this morning. The table where we are welcomed and invited, invited by Jesus to experience his presence, his cleansing, and his love. And in just a couple of minutes here, when the worship team begins to sing, you can go to one of the two tables and you can take the elements with you. And this week, we'll take them back to our seat 
and then I'll come up um, after we all have our elements and we're singing and we'll partake together this week. And if you're newer to Hope or brand new, um, again, we practice open communion here. And by the way, we don't just do that to try to be polite or gracious. Um, Gosh, we wouldn't want to refuse anyone who comes to the table in good faith to receive the body and blood of Jesus, right? Again, Jesus didn't turn anyone away from his table. And so if you want Jesus, we would never turn you away either. And I want to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read this. It's from a Celtic church in Iona. It's what they use when they partake in the sacraments in communion together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It made ready for those who love him and who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is Christ who invites you to meet him here. So this morning, as we sing, come, receive, and when we've returned to our seats, I'll lead us in taking this sacrament of communion together. And I want to send you um, with a blessing um, as we get ready to go. So people of hope, may you recognize and remember, may you trust and believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And as you go into your life and into your world this week, may you discover more deeply what it means to love God, to love others, and to follow Jesus by putting his love on display and giving it away as freely as God gave it to you. Go now and be blessed. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. We will see you next week.